You ever hear something and know the world will never be the same? Houston, we have liftoff. Well, wait until you hear this one. Half price coffee. That's right. Get into McDonald's weekdays before 10.30 a.m. for any size premium roast coffee or iced coffee. Both made with 100% Arabica beans, both half the price. Good is brewing. And that's the sound of your morning changing. Limited time only. May not be combined with any offer or combo meal at participating McDonald's. The Leslie Marshall Show. Anyhow. The only true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. <laughs> live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Danielle, here with my co-host, Shano. Hello. Filling in for Leslie again today. Uh, I'm very pleased to do so. Yes, it is an honor to uh, to sit in Leslie's chair, Even figuratively it's speaking. It's, it's not the actual chair she, she and, sits in. And to work with her wonderful producers, Mark and Andrew, who are amazing. Yes. Yes. Um, of course, the big news today that we're, we're going to be getting to is the incident in McKinney, Texas. But as it is the Leslie Marshall Show, we wanted to start out with some ripped from the headlines. You know, to give you your Leslie fix here. So I want to start off with uh, an article I saw over on Common Dreams. South Carolina officer indicted for the Walter Scott death. This almost deserves some cheers uh, because a cop was actually indicted for shooting an unarmed black man who was running away uh, during a traffic stop. We've all probably seen the video. We've definitely heard about the story. What about the story that first came out right after the incident and before the video? Oh, you you mean the story that the cop said uh, uh, Walter Scott was going for his gun? Or his his taser. His taser, taser. yes. Yes. And that was the story everyone was accepting at this point. Everyone's going on on with their merry lives except for Walter Scott. Until we saw the video evidence. Right. As is often the case in these Which unfortunately situations. has to be the case. Right. It, it, the way things are set up right now. The right. presumption is the cop got it right. That's just the, you know, and that's one of the major problems we have right now. Yep. Officer Michael Slager has been indicted uh, and will face a, an actual trial, not... And it's for murder. Right. And a fact that we have learned recently... A police officer in, in the United States, in the history of the United States, has never been successfully prosecuted for the charge of murder against an armed, unarmed black man. Wow. Ever in the history of the United States. And if it's out there, we, we certainly I've, challenge I've you. I researched it myself. Yeah. I'm a pretty good researcher. Could right. not find it. But uh, I think, you know, for the Scott family, mm-hmm. at least they're going to get justice. And for those of you who, yes, you shake your head, Shane. I agree. I understand well, no, where you're going. And I'm going, not saying but, no. I, I'm kind of tilting my head back and forth saying we'll see. Right. We but have, this is we're, far further close... along, we're further along the process than in many other cases. Right. This and is... the process is going forward and it's going to be public. Right. This is far closer to justice than we've seen in Ferguson in the Michael Brown shooting. And by the way, to all of you conservatives who said that we needed to, you know, uh, uh, STFU and, uh, 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 you know, <laughs> Keep quiet after the grand jury didn't indict Darren Wilson. Mm-hmm. That goes both ways. Because yes. in this case, the grand jury has indicted this officer and he will face his day in court. I hope that however the jury finds him, guilty or innocent, is correct and allowed to stand. That's 
I'll have to see the trial how it goes. Right. In other news... <laughs> Family raided by SWAT and dog shot for not paying utility bill. This one's amazing. What? Yes. This from Matt Agarist. Forgive me, Matt. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Uh, of the free thought process out of St. Louis, Missouri. Nothing says police state USA quite like a SWAT team raiding a ha- family home and killing their dog because they're unable to pay their natural gas bill. If you don't believe that that's the truth, go check out this amazing, in a horrible way, uh, story. Um, a woman whose dog was killed and home destroyed by SWAT officers, Angela Zorick, and her story about her police state experience will shock the conscience. According to a federal lawsuit filed this month, Zorick was the victim of a massive military-style raid and subsequent puppy-side mm-hmm a word that should never have entered the lexicon. Mm -hmm. The raid was carried out because police said they needed to, quote, check if her home had electricity and natural gas service. Get this. She called them herself. Right. After a sticker was placed on her front window, notifying her that she was in a problem property. And the entire neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Shaming her. Yes. She called them herself and said she did have electric. She Mm -hmm. couldn't afford her natural gas bill. Instead of perhaps... Coming together as a community, maybe offering, you know, some type of charity, even pointing her to a church. Sure, that's something. Where, yeah, that's that's where all their solutions are supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's not what they did. They showed up with a. Uh, oh, and she po- invited them to come back and check. Yes, though. yes. She invited, she invited. She said, them. "Please come back because I realize that there's a law uh, on the books that if a house doesn't have, you know, any uh, gas or electric." That I'm in violation of the law. I am not in violation of the law. I have electricity. You're welcome to come back and verify what I am telling you right now, that I'm not breaking the law. So please come on back. However, the next day... It wasn't a nice little tap at the door. No. She was raided by the St. St. Louis County Police Tactical Response Unit. SWAT. Um, SWAT team. Five officers with M4 rifles knocked down her door. No, No knock. Just... Barged right in, shot her dog unprovoked, three shots, and while she tried to tend to her dying dog on the floor, prompted to tell her son with a gun to his head, one word, bleep, and I'll put you, put three in you, indicating the three he just put in the dog. I'll do the same thing to you. Yes. Uh, there is a lawsuit pending, um, but... And they tore apart her house afterwards. Right. I don't quite understand... Checking the electricity, how that requires tearing someone's house apart. No. And there was no warrant in this situation, correct? There was no warrant at all. And um, where is it here? A dozen armed men dressed for war, dispatched to a woman's home, killed her dog, kidnapped her because of some moldy wood and her inability to pay her gas bill. In what world is this considered justice? The citations that she was issued, Mm -hmm. the citations that warranted this type of action and Oh, yeah, expense by the taxpayers were substandard siding, guardrail, screens, window glass, and deck. There is not a criminal offense among those charges listed. These are homeowner violations. Right. These are the things that your annoying homeowners association finds you about. These are why condo commandos get the nickname condo commandos. Right. Well, the, the, the condo commando actually is more apt in this situation because yes, they were commandos. Right. The, they were held down the side of the house. I mean, 
I don't know. It was ridiculous. But of course, that brings us to the story that most of the media has been focused on, and I would like to get your thoughts on as well. I'm sure Shane would. The incident that occurred over the weekend at a pool party in McKinney, Texas. Uh, Obviously, there are stories about this on pretty much every major and minor news outlet. The one I have in front of me happens to be by our friend Ian Milheiser over at the Think Progress blog. Um, Texas cop suspended after he's caught on video grabbing a black girl by her hair and sitting on her. And this really, you know, there's a lot going on in this video. There is. For anybody we watched, who hasn't we sat seen down, it. When it first came up yesterday, we sat down, we watched it together. The part that stopped me dead in my tracks was the when he pulled the gun. Right. Pulling that gun seemed completely crazy at that point. Because when you pull a gun, you have to be willing to use that gun. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they are taught that. What is it about that situation? What went through a peace officer's mind that a gun was necessary in that situation? I would imagine that was the initial thing that got him suspended, was pulling that gun out. Well, there, are a lot, there are a lot of other things going on there. Yeah, they're being very tight-lipped about what specifically he is being investigated for. Uh, the video has raised concerns that are being investigated by the police department. Uh, one of the responding officers has been placed on administrative leave pending the outcome of this investigation, which, by the way, for anybody who doesn't know, is usually leave with pay. Well, it, it has to be. They're unionized. Yeah. I would imagine that's union protection. But it just begs the question of where is the line in the discussion that we've had? I mean, it begs a lot of questions, but we've talked about this a lot today between the two of us. Mm -hmm. And I've heard lots of different responses from pundits and uh, individuals and online, on Twitter, on social media. What's at work here? You know, what causes situations like this? Is it primarily race? Is it economic? Mm -hmm. Is it, um, you know, inequality in in all its forms? Is it somebody who's simply overworked and underpaid? Is it cops gone crazy? Right. And where's the line? The line we used to clearly see of what was appropriate and what was inappropriate behavior for somebody in charge, a police officer, your boss, your school principal. Mm -hmm. Whereas now some people are saying that if nobody was shot and nobody was tased, then why are we talking about it? Why is it even a big deal if nobody is dead after this incident? People have actually said this today. Really? Well, there's all kinds of justifications coming out now. Right. Now, now the story is being the story is being filled in with myth, with misdirection, with blaming the victims. Right. And I think Keith Ellison, Congressman Keith Ellison, and it's a story we're going to talk about later in the show. He nails it. The link between police tactics and economic conditions cannot be ignored. You have economic conditions that have self-segregated this area of Texas. You have economic conditions that have led to cops being underworked and overpaid. Excuse me. I think I said that backwards, but I think you guys know what I'm saying. Uh, Economic conditions can't be ignored here. And how we shape those economic conditions of the future is a lot of what the presidential debate discussion and election is going to be about. So coming up next, we're going to speak with Peter Dreyer, co-author of What Kind of Mayor Was Bernie Sanders and Professor of Politics at Occidental College. He'll be up next to tell us all about the history of Bernie Sanders. Stick around.
Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Danielle here with Shano sitting in for Leslie today. I'd love to hear your thoughts on all of the news of the day. one 888 But before we get to those calls, there was an amazing story in the nation this week. And it started off with perhaps the best Bernie Sanders quote I have seen yet so far. Bernie pounded his fist on the conference table in his office and told the owners, over my dead body, are you going to displace 336 working families? You are not going to convert Northgate into luxury housing. That is just one of the amazing quotes in the story I have in front of me. And joining us is the author, Peter Dreyer, co-author of What Kind of Mayor Was Bernie Sanders and Professor of Politics at Occidental College. His most recent book is The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, a Social Justice Hall of Fame. Peter, thank you so much for putting this amazing piece together and for joining us today. I really, really appreciate it. That's my pleasure to be here. What do you think? Uh, I am a big big time follower of Bernie Sanders, yet some of the stories you've put in this article surprised me, delighted me. What do you think people would be most surprised to learn about their new presidential candidate? Bernie Sanders was the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, which is the biggest city in the state, uh, between 1981 and 1989 for eight years. He was was elected once uh, with a 10-vote uh, majority uh, margin, and then he got reelected each time by a, a bigger margin. And he was very popular, and he was uh, a very pragmatic, very effective, very uh, detail-oriented mayor who uh, not only made Burlington a more livable city uh, with a strong economy, but also achieved um, his goals for a more democratic, with a small d, and more fair and just and equal city by making sure that um, the businesses that uh, uh, that he attracted or that he expanded while he was mayor of Burlington paid decent wages. Uh, he started, helped to start a consumer uh, food co-op, which now is the largest one in the city. It's a supermarket that's owned by the consumers. As you mentioned in your opening, uh, he not only protected the largest housing development from being gentrified by these out-of-state developers, but he actually gave the tenants in that building, 336 units, the tools to uh, buy their apartment building, and now it is a resident-owned cooperative. And so um, uh, in many ways, Bernie Sanders helped to carry out a very progressive agenda, but without alienating the uh, the, the business community without alienating conservatives. He, by the end of the time he left uh, Burlington, he was an amazingly popular figure. And uh, still is to this day, uh, as far as I'm aware. Um, but uh, he was mayor for a decent amount of time, uh, quite a few years. How in that time did Burlington change? How did it um, become more small-D democratic, as you, as you explained? Well, one of the most visible examples of that is the uh, the city's waterfront. Burlington is a city uh, on Lake Champlain, which is just a gorgeous uh, environmental uh, treasure, uh, surrounded by mountains. And so, it's uh, people move to Burlington or they stay in Burlington because of the environment. And there were a number of plans before Sanders became mayor to um, overdevelop the waterfront which had been left behind and was kind of a, a mess uh, when he uh, became mayor. Um, and there were a number of plans for uh, 
huge high-rise uh, housing developments and commercial development, which would basically block the waterfront from the public. And um, just like he patted his fist and said, you're not going to turn this housing development uh, into uh, luxury housing, he pounded his fist and said, we're going to have a people's waterfront that's accessible to everybody. And so um, that's what he did. And when he announced his uh, campaign for president a couple of weeks ago, he did it at the waterfront park, which wouldn't have existed without um, his initiatives in, in, as the mayor. And so the waterfront now uh, on, in, uh, in Burlington has an eight-mile uh, bike path. It has a very small, modest uh, commercial development for offices, for lawyers, and some stores. Um, it's got uh, 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 opportunities for small boats as opposed to, to yachts. Um, it's got a huge park right on the waterfront, and it's accessible to everybody. And so there, that's an example of the kind of, uh, of uh, policies and uh, approach to governing that, that Sanders had when he was mayor. Yeah. Uh, it, I want to quickly remind everybody we're speaking with Peter Dreyer, co-author of What Kind of Mayor? was Bernie Sanders and professor of politics at Occidental College. Do you think uh, Senator Sanders' time as mayor is a good indication of what we would could expect if he were to become president? This this no-nonsense, uh, standing-up-for-everyday-Joe type Americans. Um, is that what we would expect? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bernie Sanders has a long track record of standing up for uh, working families, for challenging the uh, corporate establishment, for uh, being in favor of uh, unions and community organizing and environmental activists. Um, and so he would be an ally of those folks uh, in the White House. Um, and, you know, what's important about uh, Bernie Sanders' campaign for president is that he's not uh, – changing his views to get votes. He, uh, the, all the polls show that the kinds of things that Bernie Sanders has long believed, that uh, big corporations have too much political power, that uh, the rich don't get taxed enough, that uh, we need stronger regulations to protect uh, consumers and the environment, we need uh, stronger workplace regulations so that workers can have a voice on the job. All those things are extremely popular. Um, Americans want to overturn Citizens United, uh, things like that. And that's what Bernie Sanders has been talking about uh, as a senator and, uh, and now as a, uh, as a, camp, uh, a candidate for president. Yep. And he's also a very straightforward, plain-spoken guy. You kind of see him in action and you sort of know there's no BS with this guy. I, um, I could not agree more. I could not agree yeah. more. And I think that those factors you just listed contribute and can correct so many other issues that we're dealing with today. We're speaking with Peter Dreyer. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. We're going to be back with more, so stick around.
Marshall Show. I'm Danielle here with Shano in for Leslie today, taking your calls on McKinney, on Bernie Sanders, on whatever you want to talk about. One eight 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 six Leslie. But still on the phone with us is Peter Dreyer, co-author of What Kind of Mayor Was Bernie Sanders, and professor of politics at Occidental College author of his most recent book, The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, A Social Justice Hall of Fame. Peter, thank you so much for sticking around with us. Sure, my pleasure. Uh, we have a call on the phone from Jim uh, Jim from California who had some thoughts on Bernie Sanders. And you don't mind taking a call with us? Sure, go ahead. Okay, great. Jim, uh, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Great to be with you, folks. Listen, I've worked for 108 radio stations in my 72 years and. the uh, uh, the Tom Hartman show, oh, this has been a couple of months ago. Uh, uh, Bernie and Tom were talking about the FCC and how, you know, years ago it used to be that families uh, could own or corporations or just private uh, individuals could own 7 a.m., 7 FM, and 7 TVs. And now it's just wide open. And, and Bernie doesn't get enough press. You know, NBC is owned by Comcast and, and all these big corporations. Were, and, you know, they don't want to give him any uh, publicity. It's just a shame. I live out here in Northern California in Crescent City, and we uh, traditionally have been a real uh, Republican area. We have a big federal uh, prison, or it's a state prison, Pelican Bay, and most of the COs are all uh, Republicans. But I have talked to so many of them that are so behind Bernie. Yeah. And, and it's, just a, it's just amazing how many people... That were even Tea Partiers are saying, "Well, you know this Bernie Sanders guy. I'm really <laughs> interested in what he's got to say." Yeah, but Jim, so I, I think you're. Yeah, I think you're okay. you're onto something there about coverage, and I think that uh, people connect with him because of this background, Peter. Uh, that you're you're talking about this real deal type of real person uh, fighting for real everyday Americans. Um, any thoughts on on the FCC and media coverage, Peter? Well, you know, when I was uh, researching this article about uh, Bernie Sanders' eight years as mayor of Burlington, I talked to the richest man in Burlington, a guy named Tony Parmelo, who's uh, 97 years old now and has been a powerhouse in, in Burlington for, uh, for, for decades. Um, and he, he was very suspicious of Bernie Sanders when he was first elected mayor. Um, and he told me this great story about the, the day after the election. Uh, this is in 1981 when Bernie Sanders first was elected mayor. Parmelo uh, went over to Bernie's house, knocked on his door, and said, you know, you were elected mayor, but I still run this town. <laughs> and uh, what's interesting is over the next eight years, um, Parmelo came to not only respect Bernie Sanders, but also to, um, uh, to support him and to actually vote for him. And I think that's, you know, that's a good indication that uh, Bernie Sanders is uh, willing to do business with corporations and with business people if they play fair and if they follow the rules of a, a democratic economy. And so, uh, like the caller said, you know, Bernie Sanders has been uh, a huge opponent of uh, big business when they act irresponsibly. He supported, uh, you know, knocking down the rules around uh, media ownership. He's been a critic of the insurance and banking industries. Uh, he was a big advocate for single-payer and still is single-payer health insurance. Um, and his uh, eight years as mayor show that um, he's able to talk about those things without sounding like he's uh, on some uh, distant planet. He talks very plain about uh, 
what he calls the oligopoly or the plutocracy that is running American uh, politics and, and about campaign finance reform. And so um, that's why I think he does appeal to a broad spectrum of people. He's extremely popular in, um, in Vermont. Vermont only has one congressional uh, uh, seat. And so for many years he was the only congressperson, and now he's one of two senators from, uh, from uh, Vermont. And Vermont is not... Um, uh, you know, a, a hippie liberal state. It's got a lot of conservative uh, areas. A lot of it's a rural state. It has a high rate of gun ownership. Even in Burlington, which is often seen as a kind of liberal city, it wasn't a liberal city uh, until Bernie became the mayor and helped to transform the uh, the political culture of that town. It has a lot of uh, white working class Canadian Americans who generally voted for moderate Democrats or moderate Republicans before Bernie, and he, he won them over. And so I think, um, you know, what's going to be great about this election campaign is to see uh, Bernie Sanders being able to debate six times uh, on a national stage. So I'm glad he's running, even though he's an independent and he's not a Democrat, um, he's running in the Democratic Party primaries, and that means he'll be able to uh, be one of the candidates in the six debates that the candidates have agreed to, and that's he's an incredible debater, and uh, so that you know, even if he doesn't win the election, he's going to shift the the debate, he's going to shift the agenda, he's going to make Americans think about things that uh, the other candidates probably won't. Yeah, and I think he's surprising everybody. Uh be it everybody who hasn't written background pieces on him for the nation or isn't familiar with his history and his his supporters, um, I think he's surprising everybody with his ability to uh, gain support and keep it con- continue rising in the polls. I think one of the remaining uh, claims against him from the business community is they they call him anti-business, anti-corporation, uh, and I don't think that that's necessarily an accurate description. You cover some of that in your piece. How would you respond to, to the people who continue to call him anti-business? Well, when he was mayor of Burlington, the city expanded the number of jobs, the number of firms. He was very good at attracting new businesses. Um, he helped to start an organization called uh, Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility, one of the biggest employers in um, uh, in Burlington is Ben and Jerry's. But there's a lot of other businesses in Burlington that um, have to live with a different set of rules about the environment, about workers and uh, the minimum wage and so forth. Um, and so he's not anti-business. Um, He's against corporate plundering and against uh, widening inequality. And, you know, most economists now understand that the, uh, the huge gap between the rich and everybody else in America is bad for the economy. It's bad for business. If people don't have money to spend, then they, uh, then they can't uh, buy things in the, uh, in the stores, and they won't, that doesn't create jobs. And so, you know, although, you know, Bernie calls himself a socialist, the kind of socialist he is is the kind of uh, socialist they have in in Scandinavia and Denmark and Finland and Norway. Those are extremely healthy countries with uh, very strong economies, with uh, close to full employment, with great uh, environmental policies, with strong labor unions. Um, and most of the business leaders in those uh, countries understand that, that having more equality, more workers' rights, more, uh, more a better distribution of income and so forth is actually healthy for the economy. And so, yes, the the Chamber of Commerce of the United States is not going to be a Bernie Sanders supporter. But uh, ordinary working people uh, will understand that what he's saying is, is common sense. And so yeah. 
you know, what's amazing about him is that even though he calls himself a socialist, Americans don't um, don't see him as uh, as a radical. They see him as a guy talking common sense. Right. And I, I think uh, to speak to Jim's comment from earlier, the more attention he's given in the press, uh, it's it's kind of having a snowball effect where he's getting a lot of demand for even more attention after that. I want to quickly remind everybody, we're speaking with Peter Dreyer, co-author of What Kind of Mayor Was Bernie Sanders, which you can check out in The Nation. And his most recent book is The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, A Social Justice Hall of Fame. Um, the the whole Sanders idea, people are calling it a revolution. I think it's more on uh, along the lines of what you were just saying that these are common sense american ideas that these are things most people regardless of political affiliation want from whoever gets elected um regardless of what somebody listening might think about bernie sanders or who they want to be president um do you have any thoughts on how we take his message and we we make sure that that becomes reality no matter what well, you know, when Bernie Sanders was mayor of Burlington, the reason he was so successful was not just because he had great ideas, and not just because he hired really smart people to work for him, which he did, but also because he mobilized the community uh, and had them participating in the uh, in the in the in the city. So he helped to start neighborhood uh, planning organizations. He encouraged uh, labor unions. He encouraged, as I said earlier the residents of the biggest housing development to start their own co-op and to own their, to be their own landlords, basically. To, uh, he helped uh, a number of businesses uh, turn into uh, employee-owned uh, companies. And so, um, you know, I think the, the larger message is one of democracy, is that uh, Bernie Sanders is calling for uh, a healthier democracy where uh, voting and campaign contributions and so forth are done because people want a strong and good government, not because uh, they want money to rule and uh, big corporations to run the economy. There's a great um, uh, video on YouTube of Bernie Sanders a couple years ago in a Senate hearing on health care where Bernie Sanders is basically debating Rand Paul, the libertarian <laughs> Republican. Um, and it's, it's really wonderful to watch because Bernie, I mean, I think if you had a poll, even of the most conservative Americans, they would say that Bernie won that debate because uh, he really does talk common sense. And so when you listen to him talking about, for example, uh, he's been great on, uh, on providing services, on advocating services for military veterans. Yes. He's helped to um, save the post offices from being uh, uh, closed down in rural parts of Vermont. I mean, these are bread and butter issues. Uh, uh, one reason that Tony Parmalu, the uh, the rich Republican from uh, from Burlington, liked Bernie so much is that he was a big advocate for uh, for a strong police department in Burlington. But he wanted the police department to be fair and to be uh, to be honest and to not obviously abuse the citizens. And so, you know, Bernie's not an ideologue who doesn't have practical experience both as mayor of uh, Burlington and then in the House and now in the Senate. Um, he's very much tied to uh, the day-to-day -day realities that are facing Americans now in this very insecure and, and very troubled economy. I, I could not have said it better myself, and I do think that all of these issues that you're talking about are so interrelated from, you know, the economic issues to uh, w how we take care of our veterans all the way to, you know, the racial issues and the, the income and racial inequality that we see playing out in 
you know, story after story after story of police violence. I think having somebody like him on the scene uh, talking about how all of these issues um, affect each other and are interrelated is is certainly important. Um, and, you know, hey, just to lastly wrap things up, uh, what do you say to people who say he can't win? Well, you know, uh, what I wrote about in my book, The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, is that the the radical ideas of one generation are often the common sense of the next, right? I so, love it. Um, <laughs> you know, when, when people say you can't win, and it all, it, there's a different, there's, he may not be the next president of the United States, but if his ideas become more popular, if he helps to mobilize people, if he pushes the uh, Hillary Clinton to the left uh, and forces her, as she's already doing, talking about uh, raising the minimum wage and uh, overturning uh, overturning Citizens United, that's a victory in its own. I mean, it would be great if he actually won the presidency. He'd have to, you know, and uh, in Iowa right now, he's he's speaking to big crowds, much bigger than anybody anticipated. He's raising a lot of money in small donations. The day after he announced, he'd already raised a couple of million dollars, which uh, he outdid Cruz and. Um, Ted Cruz and uh, and uh, Marco Rubio in their first day of fundraising, and so you know he's uh, and once the debates happen, once he's out there on national television, and uh, the the broad general public uh, doesn't have to filter uh, what they hear about Bernie Sanders through the mainstream media, but can watch it live on television. I think he'll get a much he'll get a big bump in the polls. You know whether he's got the the grassroots, uh, where the money to fund a grassroots campaign to win the major primaries um, is yet to be seen. But uh, but don't count him out. You know, yep. that's, in, Bur- in Burlington, he ran for all kinds of offices on the Liberty Union ticket for many years. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't come close. And then he well, decided to run for mayor. Uh, and uh, people thought he would didn't have a shot, yeah. and he was elected, and then he was reelected three more times. So don't count him out. Uh, in his words as well, Peter Dreyer, author, co-author of What Kind of Mayor Was Bernie Sanders. Thank you so much, Peter. Back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Danielle here with Shano in for Leslie today. And on the line with us is the one and only Victoria Jones of the Talk Radio News Service, who will be filling in for Leslie tomorrow and Wednesday from from amazing Talk Radio News reporter to host. Victoria, how do you do it? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm just born that way. <laughs> I don't doubt it for a second. So what's in the news today? The uh, president had a press conference, I see. He did. He was at the G7 uh, in Germany and in uh, Bavaria. And at the end of that, he had a press conference. He said a number of things. Uh, Among them, he had a question from a member of the American press corps about uh, Obamacare. And he uh, said uh, this should be an easy case, frankly. It shouldn't have even been taken up. Now, that wasn't his his response off the top. It came in the body of his responses. But he did say that. He also said, which is a, a, a fascinating thing for him to say, um, presumably they've already made up their minds. If they haven't made up their minds, it might make some people a bit cross. He said that um, 
he rejected the basis for the challenge to Obamacare, to the four words in, in the act, said it's well documented, quote, that the authors of the uh, Affordable Care Act, quote, never intended to block people on federal exchanges from obtaining the subsidies. He said there's no reason why the existing exchanges should be overturned through a court case. He also refused to answer questions about his contingency plans and um, then asked why they weren't preparing a backup plan. He paused and he said, I want to make sure that everybody understands that you have a model where all the pieces connect, and there are a whole bunch of scenarios, not just related to health care, but all kinds of stuff that I do, where if somebody does something that doesn't make any sense, it's hard to fix. And then he said there was one way to resolve the dispute. He said Congress could fix this whole thing with a one-sentence provision. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really interesting. I can't help think, uh, but think of you know Lincoln and Dred Scott. I don't know how that would work out here. You know, I'm sorry for Mr. Scott, so to speak. Um, in that, uh, could could the president ignore the Supreme Court's ruling? I I don't see how he could in this case, but it certainly is interesting. Could the president ignore the ruling? Just like Lincoln did and said, uh, you know, I'm sorry for Mr. Scott in Dred Scott. No, I don't think so. I don't think he could. No. Yeah. Oh, it, it, it's certainly interesting. We'll have to wait and see what happens on that one. And hopefully the justices come to their uh, senses. Um, and what else is in the news with the Labor Department? This is really very interesting. The Obama administration is about to possibly double the salary levels that would require employers to pay overtime in the most ambitious government intervention on wages in a decade, according to Politico, and it doesn't need Congress's permission, and it could happen as early as this week. The Labor Department could propose a rule that would raise the current overtime threshold, which is 23,660, to as much as 52,000 extending time-and-a-half overtime pay to millions of American workers. Now, business and Republican opponents say it's going to kill jobs and will force employers to cut hours for salaried employees. And, of course, Democrats are saying the opposite. So it could be very interesting. So if people aren't familiar with this rule, essentially you couldn't say that somebody at $23,000 a year is salary and not entitled to overtime. They would have to make 50-something thousand uh, before they met that threshold and were exempt from time-and-a-half pay. Right, but, but, but you can still be categorized as white co- There's a white-collar exemption, which excludes executive, administrative, and professional employees from getting overtime pay, which means, for example, that a secretary is sometimes ineligible for overtime pay. So it wouldn't change the the secretary exemption or the administrative exemption, just the dollar amount on the salary? Right. So, so people who are eligible for it, um, would more people would be eligible for it, but the types of jobs would not change. Hmm. Uh, It's certainly interesting. I don't know that most people realize that uh, if you're categorized as a secretary and paid salary instead of hourly, that you can be denied uh, overtime pay and this seeking to change that. Anything else? Anything else in the minute or so we have left? Uh, Yes. I think the other thing that that I would say is that um, 
we should keep our eyes on the developments out of McKinney, Texas, where uh, uh, Corporal Casebolt slammed the 14-year-old girl in the bikini to the floor, um, because more is coming out about that case. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the girl has been talking, and uh, she says that she thinks that he just didn't like the way she spoke to him. Casebolt, who's a 10-year veteran, um, also serves on the police union as vice president. He's also a one-time instructor at a self-defense place, website noted that he has a strong working knowledge of human behavior and yep. experience in the use of all levels of force. It is something we will be talking about in the next hour and presumably tomorrow when you're hosting. Thank you, Victoria. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Danielle here with Shano filling in for Leslie today and... In all of the news that I tried my best to cover, uh, there was a theme you may have sensed. And here to speak with us about it is the one and only Goldie Taylor, veteran journalist, opinion writer, filmmaker. Uh, Goldie Taylor has been working a working journalist, communications executive, and political strategist for nearly 25 years, including her most recent role as an MSNBC contributor. Uh, she is the author of In My Father's House, The January Girl, she is currently working on her third novel, Paper Gods, and is producing her first feature-length documentary, 89 Blocks. Goldie, that is quite an intro, and I'm sure I missed something. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me. Oh, of course. Uh, I would love to get your reaction, first and foremost, to that amazing, and not in a good way, video out of McKinley, Texas, that uh, spread on social media over the weekend. You know, I happened to be sitting in church when that story broke. And, you know, I, I, we're social media-driven church, thank goodness, because I was on Twitter while the pastor was preaching. And uh, happened to have that story pass my smartphone. I got up immediately. The young girl's face I saw staring at me from my own phone looked like my own child. I have two grown daughters now who are just into their 20s and not long ago were teenagers at a pool party. And, you know, we've lived in racially diverse communities. We've lived in all black communities. We've lived in all, largely all white communities. Never have I feared that something like that would befall them. And so yeah. driving home, as I began to write the story in my head, you know, it, it just began to pain me to hear this young girl repeatedly calling out for her mother, who obviously could not get to her, could not help, could not save her from the predicament that she was in. Yeah, it was uh, quite powerful and and uh, knocked me for a loop to see a child being handled that way by a police officer, let alone the whole uh, factor of race, of discrimination, of inequality uh, in that interaction. Um, a lot of people are trying to say that race isn't a factor in this scenario. Would you how would you respond to that? <clears throat> well, let's pull race out of it. Let's say all of the children and the adults there were of one ethnicity. Did not their civil rights remain intact at every step of the way? Um, what gives a police officer the right 
uh, to, de- to detain, to wrestle down, to assault a young girl, to wave his gun at two young boys, none of whom had committed or were sus- um, had been suspected of committing or participating in any crime. What gives them the right to chase down and aggressively handcuff only these, ch- only these children, let's take race out of it for a moment, whom they had not suspected had committed any crime? And so let's just pull race out of it, and let's just make it a civil liberties question. And then let's just add race back in. Yeah. Let's say that this was a young white girl being wrestled to the ground. Let's say she was being dragged by her long instead of braided brown hair, that she's being dragged by her long blonde hair. Would our reaction be the same? Would some of us who are saying you don't know all of the story, would we be saying that any officer was justified in dragging a child that way? That is the and question so that keeps that, sticking I think that, with me. I think that, 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 becomes the, that becomes the central question. I, I understand that there was uh, some uh, discord at the pool that day because you know there were children there who were deemed outsiders. Those children, by the way, had guest passes right. um, and had a right to be there on those guest passes. Um, but that there were some racial epithets hurled. You should go back to your Section 8 housing, one mm-hmm. woman yelled at a child. And so a child, another child, a white child, objected to this. A fight ensued, and of course, when a fight ensues, I expect the police to recall. But I expect my police officer to show up on the scene to discern what has happened, what has unfolded, to question all of the relevant parties, and to make arrests if necessary. That didn't happen. What you had were a police officers, 12 of them. Uh, rolling onto the scene. One of them did a barrel roll in the grass. I don't know what that was about, if you saw it. Yeah, it looked a little bit (laughs) like it was out of some cheesy action movie. I know what you're talking about. It was absolutely an an amazing sight. And so he barrel rolls into these kids, and they began, you know, arresting every black child in sight. Yes. White children out there, Asian children, Hispanic children, children of Middle Eastern descent, who were never, ever um, touched. Never handcuffed, never detained, never questioned. In that way, it really was such a stunning visual where you saw these crowds uh, along the side of the street and saw what many of us have seen in our everyday life, uh, uh, police officers go directly to people of color, directly to, uh, you know, black children, which I I think is important to emphasize in this discussion, and tell each and every one of them to now except being treated like a criminal. And that's a problem to me, personally. Before they had truly assessed everything that was going on, every single person of color is being told to sit there and act like a criminal. I mean, am I crazy to 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 look at that and, and uh, see that so visually? You know, I think when we talk about the term implicit bias, that's exactly what we mean, that our children, that we are, viewed as inherently more immoral, inherently more criminal, inherently more prone to violent behavior than our counterparts. And that, you know, and and that left unchecked, very dangerous things could happen. That officer pulled out his weapon, pulled out a service revolver on two non-threatening, unarmed black boys. Two other officers quickly interceded. What if they had not? Right. What if that gun had gone off? What if one of those or both of those young boys had been shot? Would we still be having the same conversation today as, and, and saying that you know, no one was unharmed? I'm going to tell you, I don't believe that young girl got up off the ground the same way she got onto the ground. I think she's traumatized by this. I think that having your civil liberties 
you know, summarily attacked in that way uh, is a traumatizing event. I think that anybody watching uh, was impacted by this. And to watch adults, largely white but some black, stand by and help the officers mm-hmm. to cheer them on, to write thank you notes and hang them on the pools uh, by the very next day, um, I think was even more galling to me uh, is the community's response, but not to hold uh, the woman who hurled the, the initial epithets. Not to hold her in any way responsible. She or wasn't arrested. The police officer handcuffed. responsible. She never went to jail. Right. And, uh, the, and the police ought to be responsible. Yeah. I want to quickly remind everybody we're speaking with Goldie Taylor, veteran journalist, opinion writer, filmmaker. You know her most recently from MSNBC as well as a long history of uh, journalism and, and uh, communications pr- production, political strategy. Um, uh, just pulling through the news headlines today, this morning, you know, getting ready for this show and others. Um, you know, there's uh, a piece from Keith Ellison about race and inequality. There's, of course, the news out of South Carolina that an officer was actually indicted uh, in the shooting of Walker Scott Walker. Uh, Walter yes. Scott. Walter, Thank you. Old, have too many pieces Walter of paper. Scott. Yeah. Uh, and and as well as Khalif uh, Browder, uh, a young man who was in a situation much like these kids were at 16 years old, arrested for theoretically stealing a book bag and ending up in Rikers Island for three years. You know, the, the Texas event not happening in a vacuum. Um, how is it that people can still deny that there's a problem here? They continue. <laughs> yet, yet they continue. If you look at a case like Haley Browder's, where at 16 years old, he is arrested on suspicion of stealing a backpack. Let's say that, let's say he stole the backpack. Right. Let's say that there's not a doubt in the world that he stole the backpack. Does he deserve to sit in Rikers Island for three years without a trial? We guarantee people a right to a fair and speedy trial. But this 16-year-old was placed in an adult, one of the most notorious adult correctional facilities in this country for three years, two of them spent in solitary confinement. And we expected that he was going to come out of that jail and skip along as if nothing happened to him. All the charges were dropped, by the way. He didn't steal the backpack. But when he left that jail cell, I argue that he took his cell with him. He attempted suicide multiple times inside the prison, and his mother found him dead finally just Sunday, just yesterday. Um, And so you don't ever come out the way you went in. And what could have happened if we had arrested one or more of those children? By the way, none of them were, thank Thank goodness, arrested uh, on Friday night. And they would be sitting inside of a Dallas-Fort Worth County uh, jail cell tonight having to raise bond. Yeah, Khalil, uh, uh, Kaylee Browder sat in jail because his parents couldn't raise ten thousand dollars cash for a bond. As so few people would be able to do these, these days, regardless of skin people, color. There was a study just recently that showed the average American couldn't come up with four hundred dollars if pressed to. <sighs> so, so if you say uh, now I'm in jail and I've got a bond and I've got a ten thousand dollars cash my family needs to come up to, well, heck, I've got to stay there until somebody comes along and proves that I'm innocent. And then somebody, and so that's really, I yeah. say that, that, that our system doesn't have a baked-in bias. Right. Poor people, because people of color, um, I think it's just, um, I think it's walking, I think it's walking with blind eyes. I could not agree more, and there is so much here. I know there's a lot to digest. I want to hear your thoughts, and we're going to hear from more, uh, gold, more Goldie, one eight 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 six leslie Give us a call. We'll be right back. 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Marshall Show. I'm Danielle here with Shano, and we're speaking with the one and only Goldie Taylor, veteran journalist, opinion writer, and filmmaker. Uh, Goldie Taylor has been working as a journalist, communications executive, and political strategist for nearly 25 years, including her most recent role as an MSNBC contributor. She is the author of My Father's House, The January Girl, and currently working on her third novel, Paper Gods, as well as producing her first Feature-length documentary, 89 Blocks. I don't know how you find time to do all of that, Goldie, but you do an amazing job. Thank you. For it's been a long 25 years. <laughs> Thank you for staying years. with us. Yeah. Um, you made a comment uh, in the last segment that I think is so profound, that um, the young man, Caleb Browder, who uh, tragically committed suicide, this week after being unjustly arrested and kept in Rikers for three years, he brought the cell with him. He, he took that uh, horrible event and it became a part of him. Do you think that that could happen to this this young 14 year old girl after she was treated so horribly by police and that it happens every day to men and women of color uh, because of being treated this way? You know, I think it's these kinds of instances, um, and they don't have to make national news for, right. you know, our community to hear about them, to talk about them, to witness them. These kinds of incidences are the kinds of things that break down uh, that bridge of trust between our communities and police. And so when uh, people ask, where did the trust go, I point them to, I point them directly to these videotapes. That's where the trust went. The trust went when Kaylee Bowder uh, hung himself Sunday. The trust went when this 14-year-old girl was thrown to the ground, handcuffed, sat on, and two other boys had the guns waved at them. That's where the trust went. And so, uh, you know, what I ask people to do is to remind themselves that, you know, when we look at the news, we, we see it through the lens of, that couldn't happen to us. I implore them to say, it could happen to me. And what if it did? You know, how would I then feel if that was the kind of thing that I witnessed unfolding in my day-to-day community? You know, how, what would my state of mind be like? How would I treat my fellow man? How would I react to police officers when they came to my community if what I had seen of them was this kind of track record? And so, and, and so that's you know, really what the discussion has to be. You know, I woke up this morning, I've been following the uh, Walter Scott case, the shooting out of North Charleston, South Carolina, for many months. I went to North Charleston for his wake and funeral a few months back um, and reported there from the scene. What struck me was that when Michael Slager turned in his gun after that shooting, turned in his taser and his gun, you know, he was told to go home, get some rest, you know, give your statement. And he gave a statement full of false statements, full of of mistruths, and they believed him. Yeah. Michael Slager had been believed. The case was going to be closed. But for the emergence, and that is even after a medical examiner concluded that this man had been shot five times in his back, that case was going to be closed. But for a video, 
a third-party video taken by a bystander over a shaky fence. But for that video emerging in national news, Michael Schlager never would have been charged. He never would have been indicted. He would not now face trial. He would not need his high-flying defense attorney. He would have been believed because he comes to the community under the cover of a shield. And that young man standing over the fence who was the witness, had he not videotaped it, he would never have been believed. Yeah. And so that's the difference, you know, for so many of us in our communities is that, you know, coming forward, uh, sometimes you worry about that because you worry about, you know, your own safety. You, wor- you wonder if you're going to be believed. Yeah. You know, I I saw this video and my first reaction was to feel like I would have been one of the the two individuals who uh, the police chased off uh, with a gun. That 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 first human natural reaction is to want to defend those who are being harmed and uh, who who is being violated. And I can't. He might have. He might have. He might have had to shoot me. Right. I I can't help. But look at that video and wonder if I would have ended up arrested that day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I am certain that I would be in cuffs and not certain that I would have made it out of there. Had yeah. that been my child, you know, fighting, um, you know, to be free on that ground. Yeah. Uh, you know, thank goodness the Black Lives Matter, the Ferguson movement, that this is getting more press than it has. This has been going on for decades. Anybody who sure. who, who knows well enough and knows it's been going on since uh, the days of Jim Crow and before. But it's oh, finally sure. getting talked about. How do we take this momentum, this uh, the strength of a movement, and, and actually turn it into something to keep the momentum going and to keep highlighting these events and pointing out that they are wrong? Well, at some point, people are going to get dull to seeing um, someone else killed on our nightly news. At some point, we're going to stop being outraged. The real change will happen when we start going house to house and neighbor to neighbor talking to one another about these kinds of issues. Answering the jury uh, uh, summons, going to serve on the juries, uh, coming in with an open mind, an unbiased opinion, you know, really sort of wanting to understand the facts of how things unfold. It is one thing to charge a police officer. They do get charged. It's another thing to get them indicted. That is even, that's rare. But getting a conviction on a jury of 12 against a police officer, no matter how egregious the behavior, is all but impossible. And so right-minded people, open-minded people, have got to begin serving on juries. And we've got to begin pressuring our public, the elected officials, including district attorneys, um, including, you know, mayors and, and police chiefs, to implore them to understand they work for the protection of and service of these communities, not for themselves, yeah. and not for their next election, not for their next appointment. And so it will take an enduring public pressure to make meaningful change, because at some point the media spotlight, as you and I know, will run out. The cameras will go away, and they'll say, well, it happened again. You know, what are we going to do now? Move yep. on to the next story. Well, I know that you will keep covering it. We will do our best as well. And, and hopefully, you know, as a nation, we will actually make some progress. Goldie, thank you so much for your time today. Marshall Show. I'm Danielle here with Shano. 
Filling in for Leslie today. Shano, you finally get to use your mic. Yay! Yay! What does that do here, this thing? Oh, I talk into it. <laughs> Actually, I was watching the thunderstorms outside. It is crazy here for anyone who's in the D.C. area. Uh, yes. Well, it, I think a lot, of, watch. a lot of areas have been uh, pretty severe weather. But we are here uh, in D.C. talking about McKinney, Texas, as well as these uh, you know, big picture issues. Race issues on ha- uh, overall. What uh, plays into these issues economically, uh, racially. How do we, you know, get to solutions? Yeah, it's interesting. You, you were talking about economic segregation, but I think socially we're doing the same thing. Not when I say we, I mean you and I. But some people, because if you talk about the very first comment that that set this all off, was a Section Eight comment, right? Which it- is which is assisted federal subsidies for housing. For people who are less advantaged. So socially we're doing that. And then you have cops in who are physically doing it. So you have economic, social, and with force, enforcing uh, segregation. So we have even less understanding. You know, when you listen to Joe Masson, his response always to all these things is get to know everybody. Get to know your neighbor. When you grow up and you are you grow up in a diverse community, all of the the, the misunderstanding, the uh, – any – I'm better than or less than goes away, and we can move on with this. Yeah. But you've got a police force, I think, enforcing segregation in the situation. Yeah. I I think that's a, a, a fair statement. Um, but we would love your thoughts. 888-6-LESLIE. And let's check in with Michael on line five, calling from the Bronx, who has some thoughts on McKinney, Texas. Michael, thanks for calling the Leslie Marshall Show. Hello there. And I got a lot of thoughts on this, as well as other police abuse cases. First off, this blasted cop did not. Uh, let me backtrack. He allowed a racist situation to uh, not only escalate, but the people perpetrated um, get away with it. Yeah. Because the people that uh, made the racial epithet, they mainly um, created a verbal harassment. I'm trying to think of the exact... Um, legal term for it, and they provoked a situation. They pretty much invaded on a private party, so to speak. They had no right whatsoever to impose themselves on this um, legitimate pool party that was going on. No one was breaking any laws. And then to add to insult to injury, um, I got to go back and review it, but then there was reports that one of those white people that Hello? I'm here. Okay. One of the white people that um, started this argument to begin with um, assaulted a black person, openly, open-handedly slapped the person. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that the person she slapped was a person of color. I don't know, because from my understanding, and, you know, yeah. details are coming out about this every moment, the, so things can change. But my understanding is, is a young white girl confronted an older white woman for being racist, for making the comments that you're talking about, for for belittling people because of their skin color, and that the older woman slapped the younger woman. That was my understanding. And that was the quote-unquote fight that police were called about. Right, and why hasn't she back. being arrested? Huh? I said, why hasn't she been arrested? That is that is a legitimate question, and the thing is that this cop did not assess the situation. Only thing he was told, and probably what he heard was there are black people um, involved. So his his mentality, of course, was get after the blacks only. Right. You know, and I'm I'm sick and 
tired of that, and I know there are right-wingers that are listening to this that always, always defend this kind of police abuse going on. And even when a person of color gets killed, they always fish for excuses, even after the doggone videotape clearly shows who is that wrong. Right. I want to let everybody know what's going on here. And it does have to do with not just civil rights, but also voting rights. Because remember when you always heard Democrats say, we got to get the vote out? You remember that, right? Of course. I mean, we hear that every day. Okay. Well, it's kind of difficult to get your Democrats out to vote when your um, registered um, Democratic voters, your constituents, are getting harassed, killed, or even arrested by police, uh, wrongly, I should say. You're talking about Texas. Michael, they don't even have to do that. They just put them all in one district and say that they're they're discriminating based on the fact that they're Democrats, not the fact that they're racist. And they even, you know, th- this is one of the cases before the Supreme Court, right, Shane? No, the just- Justice Department. And Justice Boy. Department. But, they, you know, they, they just use one term instead of the other because they know that, statistically it's- speaking, they're going to be talking about the same group of people. And tough luck. They'll just limit their vote that way. But it goes, but it goes beyond Texas because what's is for every person of color that is wrongly arrested or even annihilated, if I can use that term, that's one less opposition vote for Republicans because 99% of registered um, black voters are in the Democratic Party. Yeah. So the thing is, so the thing is, is that you know, I'm for one was not born yesterday. So I would tell these right-wingers, don't blow smoke up my you-know-what. You know full well that there's racism going on, and I'm sick and tired of them saying, you shouldn't be talking about this, you should talk about black-on-black crime. Yeah, well, then let's talk about white-on-white crime. You know, it, it, yeah, statistically speaking, every race, every culture is going to be the predominant cause for death among their, you know, homicide. A, a homicide. Uh, but... Always- yeah. Always try to change the topic whenever you, I, or other person of reason speak the truth, and the evidence is right freaking there. And when they turn out and do that stuff, they encourage the injustice to go forth. I, I call that aiding and abetting a doggone crime. <laughs> Michael, you make a lot of great points there, and I, I, I thank you very and much for calling. Up, people, for yeah. the love of God. You said it. He said it. Thank you very much for calling. And to that, if you're going to talk about in terms of voting, um, you know, the ex-felon laws in many states, you know, if you've been convicted, you're not going to vote ever again. You know, that's another thing we have to look at. Right. Because you have an overrepresentation of people of color in prison. And, you know, I don't really think that cops are going around uh, doing this to stop voters. Right. I do believe it is a result be it unintended, but it certainly is a result, therefore diluting the power to elect people who will do something about the police. Right. You so look it can, at Ferguson, turns into a vicious cycle. You look at Ferguson, and it's an, a, a perfect example. Right. Where it does, they don't even have to say that you have to get your, your voting rights back because you're a felon. They could just say, spread this myth out there, sure. this idea. Right. In that, Cleveland, the, the, with the big uh, billboard saying, you know, Vote, uh, voting, uh, whatever, Voter fraud. Is, is a crime. Right. No, they don't even Trying have to, to do that. Intimidate. They could just say that if you show up to vote, we're going to be there waiting for you with uh, to arrest you for this for outstanding the, warrant, right, which you got because you couldn't afford to pay a parking ticket. Very good point. You know? Uh, yeah. Very, so, very good point. Uh, they, don't, they don't have to be so open about it. They can... They can have the same effect. Sure. And it's just a coincidence. But, it, you know, this, this whole idea of racism... 
So many on the right think that if you're not, you know, attending the Klan meetings and showing up for your local cross burning, that you don't qualify as a racist or that some uh, part of your actions wasn't racial, wasn't racially motivated. But this idea of the other. Right. Inherent racism. Right. Is, is evident in this police officer's actions, that he immediately saw a bunch of kids. Right. And picked out, decided that the black ones were the problem. Racism can be conscious viciousness and hatred of another race. Right. Another color people, because we're all human, all the human race. But, but racism can also be inherent. It doesn't have to be this conscious hatred. Uh, and th- that is pervasive still. I'm sorry. It still is. It, and and it, it, the the Bill O'Reilly's of the world who make all kinds of comments about Sylvia's up in Harlem and say, oh, what I say? what I say? You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Ice tea. Right. Yes. Yeah. There's so much to unpack there. Uh, let's check in with Paul in uh, Woodenville, Washington on line one. Paul, thanks for calling the Leslie Marshall Show. Oh, you bet. Uh, and uh, Shano, that microphone's not an ice cream. Don't lick it. <laughs> <laughs> line of the day to Paul there. Okay. Well, my question is this. Why is it that teachers can deal with these kids, but yeah. cops can't? I mean, all of these kids go to school, and I, I'm here to tell you that kids, they're the same kids when they're out of school as when they're in school. And I know that because I taught for a long time. And, you know, I, it seems to me the whole approach is uh, with the police. is See, their, their model is different. Their model is, I think, Cops have the model that we're fighting crime, right. rather than they're try- rather than trying to keep the peace. I'm not when I teach. I'm not fighting ignorance. I'm trying to engender critical <laughs> thinking. Right? I love that. Well, what about, yes. I mean, how about uh, the new model in medicine is not is not fighting disease. It's it's uh, pre- it's preventing disease. Right? Yeah. It's, it's promoting promoting good health. So their model is the, the, the police seem to be on this model of. Well, you know, in school is different. We're here to kick your butt. And these are just kids. And I'll tell you one thing. You talked about Ferguson. The one thing that uh, was the, the evidence that never came out is the, is the top evidence for me was that Michael Brown graduated from high school. That means he at least did enough. He did what teachers asked him to do. Otherwise, he didn't graduate. I don't care what grades he got. He did enough to, so in other words, he towed the line in high school. And, you know, whether he was a mouthy kid or not, teachers had to deal with that. But if he was really such a problem, the thug that everyone wanted to, that the, the right wing wanted to make him out to be, I guarantee you, as much as they tried to impugn his reputation, they'd have found somebody from the school system to say, yeah, this is what we thought would happen to him. He's always been a thunk and a pug, a, a, punk, a punk and a thug. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I think that the distinction that these are students and that teachers deal with them every day is excellent because the point I keep going back to is that these are children. These are teenagers. And I'm sorry, I uh, I believe firmly and in my heart that if this was a group of white, unruly teenagers, that police officers would not have handled them that way. And I have if plenty of examples. If they were white, unruly biker gangs with machine guns, they get handled right. better. But, I mean, I have plenty of examples in my own life where we were doing things, you know, sure. as a teenager, just as silly or, or talking back to people or showing up at a pool that we probably weren't supposed to be at. I did that in my 20s. Right. Come on. And nobody <laughs> ever threw me on the ground. No pointed a gun at me or put me in handcuffs over any of it. And 
you know, I'm sorry. I think this is completely and totally based on the fact that they're black kids showing up in a white neighborhood. Well, I think so. And then I think the police, <laughs> the, the, the hard, heavy-handed tactics uh, they use, they say, We're, we do it because we can. And they just, uh, it's kind of like the attitude, well, a teacher can't do that. You know, we get fired for doing that. And by the way, I have had to use physical management with some students, some big, you know, uh, kids. And I got to tell you, you do those, you do everything you can not to slam a kid to the ground. And that's actually happened to me once. I had to, to take a kid down onto the floor because he was getting so wild. And when I realized that me and another teacher were were going to fall on this kid, I said I turned the whole situation so that everybody would fall on me, not on him, because I could see that the way the you know the way we were coming down the floor was that he was going to get, we were going to fall on top of him. And I, so, I, so I turned the pile so that everybody fell on top of me so he wouldn't go down on the floor. That's what you do. That's how much consciousness you have to have when you're dealing with kids. You don't hurt them. You make, you, sometimes you do have to, to deal with them physically, but, I mean, when, when it really gets intense, but you, you make sure nothing like throw a, a 14-year-old girl in a bikini on the ground. Put yeah, it's not like they could have said she was hiding a weapon. Uh, yeah, well... Really? <laughs> that's, that's interesting. I wish yeah. there's got to be there's got to be a May West line for that somewhere. But. <laughs> well, it's this idea that you know I understand that if an officer is really threatened, you know if sure. they are really in danger, they absolutely have to use force to defend themselves. I don't have a problem with that. I I don't have a problem w- to use it when and where it's appropriate. I was, but they're I, using it in every situation right. as their first exactly. go-to. I was always well, under the impression that it was a big deal to just take your gun out. That it was the last thing right. you did. That yeah. you were trained to not in so many situations. And that's what shocked me so much is how quick that gun was, came out of his holster. Well, yeah. oh, uh, that's oh, didn't you know it's because she went for his gun. That'll be uh, that, right? She went for my gun. Yeah, I'm that's waiting. That's why the gun came out. I'm waiting for that line to come out next. Thanks for the call. Paul, always, always, always nice to hear from you. And there, there's just so much to try and unravel here. How would you feel? I don't care what skin color. If cops handled your kid that way, I would be pretty ticked off. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be back with more. Stick around. Leslie Marshall. Real people. Real life. Real talk. 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Danielle here with Shano, sitting in for Leslie today, getting your thoughts on the really stunning events that occurred in McKinney, Texas over the weekend, uh, caught on video, including a 14-year-old girl being thrown to the ground by her hair Mm -hmm. by a police officer. Essentially put his full weight on her in the middle of her back, and she's crying for her mom. Yeah. And the reason she's struggling is because her back hurts. She's crying because she's a child. Yes. I would have cried probably in that situation. That's got to be painful. Yeah. Let's uh, check in with Tony calling from Chicago on line five. Tony, you had some thoughts on the events in McKinney, Texas. Uh, Yeah. You know what? I'm really getting a little tired of everybody is everybody being delusional. We've been out of slavery for 150 years. Slavery ended for pretty much nothing else. So, you know, everybody's, oh, I'm appalled, oh, my God. It happens all the time. And you better believe if a black cop 
uh, swung a white girl blonde to the oh, ground like Could that. you he, imagine the, the media circus that would unfold? Oh, my God. And he wouldn't be able to be a security guard. anywhere. No. But this guy is on administrative leave, which is basically a vacation. Yes. So my issue here, you know, as a black woman and, and, and having lived through this all my life is the fact that until people become accountable, um, you know, until he's charged, fired, sued, uh, whatever with the follow-up, nothing's going to change. I mean, how many issues, how many of these cases have we seen just from the beginning of this year? Yeah. But you have what? One, the guy getting uh, convicted today for the Scott case? Indicted. We don't even know if he'll be convicted. Exactly. That should, that's a, that's a, a statement of how bad this problem is in this country. We can name, you know, uh, uh, victim after victim after victim after victim, but we can only find one example of a police officer actually being indicted, Charged. actually facing exactly. t- two. There's Freddie one. Gray. Like, Freddie Gray. Yep, you're right. Freddie Gray, Marilyn Mosby. I, sh- you, I stand corrected. Right, and it's only because she's the black woman that did it. And it's not to say that white people can't uh, try to get justice, but what what I want to ask white folks is, you know, why is this still here? Why aren't yeah. people being made? You, you, if you're as concerned as I am, then you need to follow through, um, you know, to make sure there's a change. Because other than that, we're just giving lip service to each other, and nothing's going to change. See, as a, as a a black woman, how do we mm-hmm. how do you respond? Uh, You know, I grew up in a place that was very much multicultural. If anything, white people were the minority. And Mm -hmm. I think that I had a beautiful childhood because of it, you know, exposed to lots of different cultures Mm -hmm. from, you know, in South Florida. So from Jamaica and Haiti and Barbados and all of these, you know, really uh, incredible cultures Mm -hmm. that I got to, to benefit from. But I also, because of that, saw this on a daily basis. And I saw people being discriminated against students in school being treated differently than white people. Mm -hmm. I saw it every day. So I don't doubt it. I don't doubt the severity of the problem. How on earth do we convince people in towns like McKinney, Texas, that are obviously predominantly white and think there's no problem because they're not seeing it every day? How do you make them understand? Well, my thing is you don't. See, what we spend too much time on is almost just like the gay uh, uh, situation. You can't spend your time trying to morally get someone to accept you or whatever. Uh, who cares? As a black woman, I'm not going to waste my time <laughs> trying to get you to uh, accept me. My thing is, legally, what are my rights, and if I can I sue you and make you accountable? I could give less than a damn if you, 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 you know, I'm not going to wait. We wasted too much time. Black folks been trying to integrate since King. And what has it gotten us so far? Nothing. So why waste your time? Just follow the law and try to make the law, even though justice is blind, she can smell black folks. But, uh, you know, you have to make people accountable. Because why waste your time? You're ne- the woman that called, she- you're never going to change her mind about black people. Yeah. I think Ever. In, in, in Ever. And we so why get, waste your time? And we have to get to a situation in our justice system, reforming the justice system, so that when you go and you file a lawsuit or you or you file a criminal complaint, that you get a verdict in your favor. So that's uh, that is as key to this entire thing. That's you, the whole thing in a nutshell. You know, Tony, you may have just solved a, a problem of my own. I guess because I feel it so strongly, I often want to make 
other people feel it and recognize that wrong. But maybe that is a waste of time. And maybe maybe dealing with actual reform is a better way to invest time and energy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because all this time and all the lawsuits and everything, we still can't get the swift justice you're supposed to. That's what you work for. Just like I said in the gay situation, why waste your time? You can't get the law. If you're going to get gay marriage and it's going to get passed, that's it. You trying to run and, oh, my God, accept (laughs) me and please please let us get Tony, amen. You said it, my friend. Thank you very much. Thanks to everybody who... Spent the day with us here on the Leslie Marshall Show. Victoria Jones will be in tomorrow, and Leslie will be back before you know it. Have a great afternoon.